Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Derek Hansen is an unsung superhero in the world of sport, speed, and athlete development. He's worked for, I don't know, everybody. He's worked with Olympic medalists, world record holders, national team athletes, pro athletes from a number of sports. He was the head strength coach at Simon Fraser University for 14 years. He's been a performance consultant to numerous professional teams, including NFL, NBA, uh, Major League Soccer, NHL, everybody. The list continues and it goes on. He's presented the world over. He's written and published everywhere. He's written two books. Uh, if you're interested in checking him out, High Performance Training for Sports uh, and Plyometrics Academy. That was published more recently in 2017. Derek Hansen is brilliant and he's got great ideas and I think his voice is a necessary one in the current climate of athletics. So I think you're going to get a lot out of today's podcast. I'd also add that if you like today's podcast, please share it. We would, we're hoping that you'll subscribe, share the podcast, rate it and leave a comment. These all go really far. They're very easy to do. They take a couple seconds and they go very far in pushing the messaging of the Good Athlete Project and our guests forward and two more people who need it. So thanks in advance. Enjoy today's podcast with Derek Hansen. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, I, I was an athlete like yourself and, and, and certainly got caught up in the training side of it. You know, I was a track and field athlete collegiately and um, nationally. And, you know, from there, uh, I got into coaching as I was doing my grad degree and never, never saw it as a career. I just sort of, yeah, okay, I'll do this. This is fun. And this is what I used to do. Give back. Right. Kinda. And then um, from there, I just kept coaching track and, uh, you know, I didn't really go to school for um, physical education or, you know, anything to do with sport performance, but um, I still kept coaching as part of that whole continuum. Yeah. So I, I basically specialized in, in speed, anything to do with speed and, and track events and, and jumping. And, and from there got into working with other teams, you know, football and soccer and all that. And, and then just sort of got into strength and conditioning. I guess that would be like the mid nineties when that was kind of taking off as an actual profession. Mm -hmm. I know it started a lot earlier, but certainly um, that's something I got into and then worked with different, again, Olympic teams, uh, worked as, a collegiate strength coach for about 14 years and from there um, during that process also connected with different people that got me involved in you know presenting writing articles uh, eventually started working as a consultant uh, with some pro teams NFL here and there and then spoke at the NFL combine a couple of times where I met people like Dr. Tim Hewitt mm -hmm. and um, you know I work with the Kansas City Chiefs sort of their speed consultant and, and, you know, put together all their off season training in that regard. Nice. And, um, you know, and then just from there, I've worked with different, you know, done different consultations with a lot of NCAA programs, including Northwestern and their mm. football staff and their medical staff. And I got a call later today with the USC medical staff. And so branched off starting some work with, I was supposed to start some work with the Houston Texans, but again, the pandemic kind of hit and that's been kind of fragmented a bit. So hopefully right. jump back on that horse again. And uh, as part of that, you know, although it was like speed and, 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 and you know, just sort of speed of movement, uh, 
along the way, I got involved in return to play and injury, you know, everything to do with injury prevention and resiliency and spoke to the NFL strength coaches a couple of years ago at an injury resiliency conference around the value of doing the speed training properly as a way to kind of protect you against a lot of these soft tissue injuries. So, you know, the injury prevention and rehabilitation and return to play side is a big part of what I do as a consultant as well. So um, that's what kind of led me to tracking things like, you know, ACL injuries, hamstring injuries, Achilles ruptures. And mm-hmm. like you said, a couple of weeks ago or last week, there was a huge spike in a lot of these injuries. Um, and, and there's a lot of speculation around why it's going on and we can get into that. But um it's certainly something that can change the obviously somebody's career, but also the the just the chances of a team. If you look at like say San Francisco, and you got a whole bunch of guys go down, um, that's going to change their prospects for this year, right? And and maybe even beyond that, if these are season-ending injuries and long-term yeah. implications for that. So those are some of the things I'm looking into right now and and trying to determine. Okay, how do we minimize the risk? How do we anticipate that something like this is going to happen, you know, and there's been a history of this, you know, with the previous lockout. So, you know, those are some of the things I'm looking at right now and trying to help where I can and not try to over, you know, guess um, what's going on. And, and, and I think that's very easy to do that when stuff like this happens, like, Oh, Mm -hmm. it's the turf, right. You know, so um, so, you know, we can get into some of those conversations. I'd love to, and maybe we pick up right there because I think, I think that's kind of what's on people's minds. You like Dr. Hewitt. And I, and I think on my best days, I, I do the same thing. I, you know, caution, um, when, when making claims is important to be as thoughtful and considerate as possible to entertain possibilities, but not say this is actually or absolutely what's going on until there's enough, there's a body of research and, and data to support it is really important. I, uh, I mentioned just sort of, I used the NFL to um, double down on the importance of what I'm doing with the local football team here just yesterday. And, and like you just mentioned, one of the, one of the guys said, well, no wait, that was the turf that, you know, is the reason that all this happened. So you, you, things float around in, in, in the Twitterverse and, uh, you know, the way that we distribute information, we don't need to get into the capitalist issues of journalism right now, but, uh, but obviously Twitter headlines are not the best source. If, if you had to, and I'll put you on the, the spot right away. If you had to make a guess, recognizing that it's that you're not making any definitive claim, what would you guess uh, is maybe one or two of the primary contributors uh, to this number of injuries in this first two weeks? And maybe for those who don't know, could you share like how alarming this frequency is? Yeah, I, I mean, and just off the bat, from a statistical point of view, it's 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 a little difficult to ascertain what's going on because we we haven't had a preseason um like a preseason in terms of like the games themselves the four games leading up to the the season you've had camp but even in camp if you watch hard knocks it was done a little differently in terms of exposure to contact and padded practices and all that there was a a more gradual return so it's it, it to sum it up it's different it's really different right now so it's not necessarily apple it is apples and oranges um so you have to go back and go okay well what what has happened well they didn't have an off season training period either so that's you know anywhere from 8 to 10 weeks of strength and conditioning 
OTA practice type thing scenario. So that's gone skill work, although that's, that's gone this year. Now you would like to think a lot of players would go and take care of it themselves, but even there were restrictions you saw with Tom Brady, he's trying to go out there and people are like, Hey, you can't go out there. Right. Right. So, um, so it's different in that regard. There's, there's a deficit of training. Um, and then we get, like I said, we get into the preseason and a lot of people are saying, well, why are we doing all these preseason games? Like, it seems like a waste of time. Let's just play. But preseason is, is there for a number of reasons. One is to evaluate talent, right. Of the new guys and, and the people that are new on the team. And, um, the other thing is to provide a very progressive way of exposing everybody to stress, right. Or the stress mm-hmm. of play. So you have the, 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 the normal sort of progression was like, Hey, starters play game one, one quarter or a couple of series in the first quarter. Right. And then you put the other guys in and then game two, week two is going to be two quarters or, you know, and teams do it differently. Right. And week three is three quarters. Um, and four, you get it off for the starters and you just play everybody else to see who you cut finally. Right. So, mm-hmm. but there's some sort of progression that everybody uses that's gone. So now the other part of that is statistically a lot of the injuries for the whole year occurred in August as part of that process, right? So you had this, let's get everybody playing. Let's try everything out. There's competition amongst players to make the team. So you'd have almost 50% of your ACL injuries would occur in August Hmm. historically, right? So now we don't have that. So now you're kind of waiting, waiting, waiting. September hits. Let's play our first regular season game and then week two and all that. And maybe now you're getting this sort of backlog of things that usually happen a little more progressively through August. So, Mm. you know, even though there's been this spike last week with, I think it was seven ACLs, normally you could have in August, you could have as many as 30. Um, So, you know, it's very difficult to say like, is this worse? Is the only thing that definitely is worse and probably because the load is putting being put squarely on the starters is we have more big names going down as opposed to, you know, the, you know, the guy who's, you know, on the bubble trying to make it and, you know, really pushing it blows his ACL out. What was his name again? You don't really know, but you know, when, when uh, Nick Bosa, you know, and and all these other names go down, you're like, Oh my God, this is serious. Uh, Saquon Barley, Barkley. And so I think that's, what's really um, in front and center in everybody's mind now is like, stars a lot of them first first month right and um you know it's all been set up by months of lack of preparation and just something that's different so that's that's kind of where i see it and and you could argue you know oh it's the turf it's this it's that but you know barkley tore his acl on soldier field which is traditionally known as like longer grass and softer you know it's not a a field turf field it's not artificial turf right last night uh one of the linebackers i think uh for uh um jacksonville you know got his foot caught on the turf i think he tore his um patellar tendon right you Mm. can see you know i posted that one and it was a, a grass field in jacksonville so is it is it the turf? Is it the grass? You know, what is it? Is it the shoes? So you could speculate, but if you just look back at the progression, it's been very, very different. Well, that's good to hear. And I I think those are um, the the, the surface and the shoes. I've definitely heard people talk about those, but that almost seems like those are like straw man arguments. I don't know if I'm even using that term correctly, but it just, you know, they, they feel like it's like a, yeah, maybe, 
but it but it feels like yeah maybe it's the shoes maybe it's the way we're designing cleats these days but why would we ever overlook this this uh you know 30 year plus body of research that is, is trending conditioning trending conditioning and, and, and progressive overloads and, and acclimatization and, and like all this stuff that already exists why would we skip over that i think not to get too theoretical here but i think it obviously has something to do with the way people think in a twitter society you know that we want we want the quick easy answer oh man the turf out there stinks and look at all these injuries um when really it's it's more thoughtful like it's like what you were just explaining and that was succinct and efficient and use of language that you just gave us but but you have to think a little bit you have to think through it and and uh, I didn't even think, you mentioned something that seems so important. We talk about, you know, like I mentioned before we got on, strength and conditioning is sort of, has become our real focus area over the last 10 years in my day job and, and four years in the Good Athlete Project. Um, to skip over that seems negligent, just preparing the actual muscle fiber. But you also mentioned uh, skill acquisition. And, I'm, and I wonder if you could you comment on this, maybe like how, how important are like the missed OTAs like to cut, you know, to, to, to plant a foot and cut in the opposite direction and then add an external impact to that, that movement, you know, skill acquisition. Would, is it safe to say that that, to, the, the, you know, missing that is, is important as well? Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for skill acquisition, acquisition under duress. So mm. You, you know, you can go and run your routes and do your rehearsal and all that, but then, okay, full contact practice right. and getting that type of stress and anxiety as part of it and dealing with that, I think is huge as well. Like I remember, you know, there's a great book um, to read about, you know, stress inoculation and it's David Grossman. And it's called On Combat. And I think everybody should read that who's involved in anything to do with sports and competition and, and just the psychological component. What did you say, David Grossman? David Grossman, and it's called On Combat. He has a number of books, and he goes around and speaks to um, tactical groups and police and military. And his background is really, you know, sort of the the nervous system and the psychological preparation around combat. Mm. Um, and and he said there was like a you know traditional. You see it in the old, you know, there were a lot of cop shows when I grew up, and it was like you know you see them in the shooting get range and shooting the targets, or you know even they'll have like things pop up and they shoot them. And he said that really didn't simulate you know actual combat, right? So th it wasn't until the advent of things like paint rounds that they mm. could use in their regular firearm that they actually got into stimulations that were really kind of added that stress, right? And I've never yeah. gone and done paintball, but I'm sure it's pretty stressful when somebody's shooting at you and even when you're getting hit by paint rounds. Mm. So he said that really kind of, you know, improved that preparation and that stress inoculation. And I think if you're missing that, as part of your football preparation. And, and we haven't seen the same, let's, let's be honest here. We haven't seen the same injuries in basketball and NHL, uh, you know, because they had their return as well and they had time mm -hmm. off, but you don't have that same anxiety. I mean, you know, as you know, you played football, it's different, right? And some mm -hmm. people said, well, I, I played soccer and I played, you know, hockey and you know, how come we didn't have these injuries? And I'm like, well, you know, when you stand on the side of, line of an NFL game or a division one game, you can hear those collisions and it's mm -hmm. very different, right? So there's a stress and there's this weird sort of feel like the only thing I can compare it to is I work with some MMA fighters too. And so you, you know, go up and you're standing beside the cage and you feel that danger, right? That yeah. anxiety. So I think that's huge as well. And there's a stress inoculation piece to that psychological component and, 
you know, wrap that all up, there has to be a progression, like you said. And um, if you're missing that, and you're trying to, you know, um, you know, be cautious and, and not do that progression, like a lot of people think, I think even in the Ivy League, they're talking about like, hey, no contact in practice. And, you know, what is the implication for that once you start actually doing it in a game, if you've mm. missed that, so I don't know how that's worked out statistically for them with injuries, but uh, you may have less injuries in practice, but the, is that, you know, compensated for with more injuries in the game? So I don't know. It's, it's a really big question mark right now, but I think there's, there's something to be said with having that physical contact and that preparation as part of your buildup. Yeah, I think you're, I mean, there's no doubt. And, and um, I mean, I'm even envisioning something like, you mentioned the rehearsal of like a seven on seven to non-contact you're out there with a throwing coach or you're running routes and things like that. Uh, I, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not the same as uh, when the pressure's on and you know, your whole teams are even just in, in a contact practice when your whole team's around and you've got to go around and the corner is pressing on your hip and you're fighting against that pressure, trying not to be, you know, um, it is like, like kickoff and punt, right? You know, how, totally. how do you simulate that? It's very difficult too. So it's interesting, and I I think um, I didn't know what. Can you expand or give us a little more on? um, I didn't realize fifty percent of ACL injuries occurred in August. So what does that mean? And and if uh, I don't want to put you on the spot in terms of having to recite numbers specifically, but if it were like in the NFL, approximately how many would that be? Um, The numbers of I've been pretty consistent, I would say, since the collective bargaining agreement changed uh, around 2011. And again, that's around the time of that that lockout, and they had some mm-hmm. injuries after that. Um, but I would say on average, you're looking at about 50 ACLs per season. That's gone as high mm-hmm. as like, I think, 64 or 65 mm-hmm. for an entire NFL season. And last year was actually quite low. I think it was maybe 29 or 30 or around there. So it does fluctuate. But I would say on average, you're looking at 50. Um, some of the things they're looking at with that were, well, you know, back in the old days, we had less, right? Even during the AstroTurf years, they had fewer. But if you look back and see how they prepared, the collective bargaining agreement allowed you to work with the players for as many as 16 weeks in the off season. So as a strength and conditioning coach, so one of, one of my friends is Jerry Palmieri and he worked for the New York Giants as the strength coach for the longest period. And, and he told me about what the differences are, you know, back in the day, you know, pre 2011 and what they got to do versus all the restrictions now. So there's kind of a legislated um, less preparation happening now because of the players union like hey we don't want our guys you know doing this all year or they need a break kind of thing and so as a result of that the numbers have gone up in this august period and wow. you know obviously obviously you get into august and all those things we talked about there's also more players right the roster can be as high as i think 100 or, or so you have guys and you know just add more people into the mix there's probably going to be more injuries um you know, varied levels of preparation because they have less control in the off season. Um, the competition aspect, uh, people trying to make the team and the fatigue, right? So as you know, once you get into training camp, there's not this gradual progression. There might be like one day without helmets, one day without shoulder pads or whatever. And then it's like, let's go. Right. So, um, you know, while the strength and conditioning coaches might have a little more, 
um, sort of education or, you know, just learning around like this safe progression of work, football coaches like, Hey, we only have this much time. We got to get in this much work on all these different areas. We got to get it going right now, two a days, whatever. And I think that's, that's exacerbated that August condition where you jump up really quickly within the first week, by the end of week one, you have, you know, 15 hamstring pulls per team or, you know, right. And, and those are kind of canaries in the coal mine for the workload and, and the, the load mm. management piece. Um, and then, yeah, somebody missteps, probably more, I would say probably more non-contact ACLs as part of that total more recently in the last 10 years than maybe 30 years ago. So whenever there's a non-contact injury, you got to think about preparation. Now, you're always going to have somebody fall into somebody else's knee and stuff happens. But sure. Um, I, th- I think the non-contact piece is is pretty relevant to the training um, issue. I mean, that all makes complete sense. And you, we we call it falling a hole injury. You can there's only so much. You know, sometimes stuff happens, and I don't want to be flippant about like Bosa losing a year or anything like that. But um, sometimes stuff happens. There's an acceptable. You know, there is an assumed amount of risk, uh, especially when you play a contact sport. Like you said, in a non-contact injury, this could be happening in soccer or or field hockey, lacrosse, anywhere. Um, the preparation side of things, that's so interesting. And I can't help but let my mind wander into like what, I wonder what all of these guys were doing in the off season. Cause you hear names like Bosa and Barkley. I highly doubt they were on the couch this whole time. Um, but what a difference it makes when you're just not with your team. And I, you know, to, to have, I, now I'm really getting into the realm of speculation. So maybe I should not, maybe I should pull back. Um, but, but I can't help but think about it. And I didn't, did you say 2001 or excuse me, 11 was about the time where, where they limited the off season and ACL injuries started going up. Was that the, was that the cutoff? Yeah, that, that was the, uh, uh, the, I guess, you know, it seems like every 10 years they do an amendment or a right. change to the collective bargaining agreement. So 2010, 2011, I think that's when they did the last one. And then, you know, they're up to changing uh, more recently uh, the collective bargaining agreement around again, how much time the players spend in the off season and with the team and at the facility. It, it reminds me of, um, well, it reminds me of, of the said principle. It reminds me of a book I'm reading right now. Don't judge me on this, but the coddling of the American mind. Have you heard of that one? And I, and, and some, I don't, I don't know that I agree with all of it. Some of it, there are some jumps just like in any book, but, but there's some interesting concepts where it's essentially like, here's this good idea. Let's, let's give our guys a little more time to whatever, relax, you know, to decompress. We want them to be uh, mentally healthy, perhaps in that way, not recognizing that this, this stressor that is more time with your team, training, running, lifting, whatever, um, actually has a, 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 an incredible net positive if we can look at this thing on the whole. Mm-hmm. I agree. That, yeah. I, and I'm going to look up this book. The, the term stress inoculation is something that we've been using in our gym for a long time. I love that idea. What, what an important thing to, um, I think for everyone to recognize. I, I wonder what you'd think about this idea. And I'm curious if you think even that it differentiates by sport, but the amount of stress inoculation that we try, you know, we, we approach every team a little bit differently. Like we have, we do have to, and, and look like we love our, kids we, we we trust them we want to create a culture of trust and mutual appreciation um but we want to win championships and and we make no mistake 
you know, that, that, that's not a, um, a sort of non-negotiable when you walk in the door. That's an assumption. Um, and we know that the amount of stress we have to expose people to in a very thoughtful way might differ by sport. Is that something, and maybe I'll just focus on that question. Is that something that you've recognized having been involved in, in such a wide variety of sports? Like there's a track athlete. Is, is there a notable difference in the, in, in the amount of stress inoculation sort of training from a psychological perspective? Um, is, is there something different there than there would be for an MMA athlete or for a football player? Yeah, I mean, it's hard with uh, track and field um, because it's it's an individual sport where you don't have an opponent like directly affecting you, right? But I would say um, one of the areas where uh, you'll see, uh, you know, everybody talks about this multilateral development and multi-sport athletes. And I know that there's been talk about NBA and basketball in itself where you get into this early specialization really early, more so than back in the day when, you know, people played baseball, football, whatever. Um, you know, you hear about all these great athletes who did that. And now it's like, you know, let's get into, um, you know, this AAU basketball and play all year round. And, and so some of the friends I have working in the NBA who do uh, talent identification and, and the medical side and researching the health of players before they draft them have said, hey, we're going in to see these guys and they have multiple fractures uh, in their feet and the ankles and, mm. you know, they have pins and plates and stuff all in their legs uh, at a very young age when maybe that was something that happened, you know, for somebody who was older and been through a lot more, but they're seeing a lot of this more because of the specialization and the repetitive stress. Right. Right. So you could say like, well, more stress is good, but at the same time, it's this very fine line of having a sort of diversification of stressors as well. So it's, it's, it's really difficult right now. And I'm, you know, I have kids of my own and I'm trying to make sure that they do, you know, we have this right balance of specialization and, but also a variation of stresses and, and even for their mind, having some different sports that they're exposed to and different things. Um, because I think it's very easy to, you know, like you said, coddle people and say like, Hey, we're just going to do this much because I want to be careful. But you know, this whole idea of natural selection and just exposing people to different things so that they do get you know, stress inoculated is very interesting to me, but there's an organic approach to that. I think that has to be part of the equation mm. and not, you know, like, Hey, we're going to put you in like, you know, the stress inoculation, you know, internet bullying course. Right. And you right. Know, right. You know, life is, is pretty good at doing that itself. So as soon as you start sheltering people and taking them away from the stress, you know, and a lot of different stressors, I think you create problems that are going to haunt you later. Right. And we could get into all of this, you know, even the anti-bullying campaigns are interesting because, you know, when it comes down to it, um, you know, maybe there's a mechanism there for making people, making sure people get exposed to different stressors and in an organic way. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not for, you know, people being bullied, but at the same time, we all, you know, if I went back in my life and I, 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 I tried to assess all the times that I was bullied or harassed or treated poorly. I mean, it's a lot of times, right? Yeah. But yeah. You, you have to deal with that. That's part of life. Um, yeah. If that was taken away, would I be in the situation that I am now? I don't know. So I think it's a really interesting area of, of exploration. I, I think, I mean, what the hell? We're going to be super open here. I, I definitely 
was in the modern definition bullied in some way. I mean, I, we, we've all been called names. We've all been, you know, ostracized in one way or the other. No, I remember when I first moved from the city to the suburbs, like the new kid goes over there, like it just, you know, and, and, and you deal with it. And I, and I ultimately made fantastic friends. You, you, you sort of, like you said, it has a way of presenting itself organically. And then we have the responses uh, that allow us to navigate that complicated and mildly stressful environment. There, do. I always think about it in terms of thresholds, right? Like, like let's use bullying and name calling. Okay, there's a top end threshold, and maybe I just say I'm dropped into a place, and I have this top end threshold, and I can only handle so much, just for whatever reason. Fine. Well, then, if the if the bullying or the or the challenge constantly breaks that threshold, then just like training, I'm in a state of uh, of, of constantly overstressed. I mean, like I, I, I don't have the time to repair and adapt and improve. And then, but, but similarly, and this, and, and, and this end of the threshold is, is um, a lot of the conversation feels like in the last 10 years or so, it's been around here. Uh, no, people don't often talk quite as much about uh, the bottom end of the threshold. And the fact is, if, if we're constantly sort of lingering down at the bottom end of the threshold, the threshold itself starts to drop. So then what would have been right here safely under my previous threshold, I'm making uh, hand indicators on Zoom. I don't know if anyone's going to be able to see this, but what would have previously been under my top end threshold, right? Because I've been, I'll just use the term coddled potentially just to be dramatic about it. It's dropped my top end threshold. And now the thing, you know, hey, new kid, you know, there's no space for you here. It might wreck me in a way that it would not have had I just been sort of going, had I been less, what's the right word here? Not less protected, but, um, and maybe coddled is the word. Had I been less coddled, I would have been able to otherwise handle it. Yeah, there's a really good concept that I apply. Like one of my mentors talked to me about this concept of speed reserve. So, you know, if you play sports, you don't really go full speed all the time. You're at say sub max, but you know, that's based on what your maximal speed is. But if you raise your maximal speed, now you can operate at a higher average speed throughout the game. So just by making people faster, you can give them, you know, this, this reserve. And I think that reserve applies to everything, strength, uh, mental preparation. And, and the more you've stressed somebody or created that ceiling, raise that ceiling, the more that you can handle everything beneath that ceiling, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea of creating reserves is really interesting. And I don't think people look at it that way anymore it's a really good metaphor and i'm i'm just gonna this is the way i work sometimes I, i'm gonna run with that i'm gonna try to write them on it and i'm gonna come back to you for maybe some quotes i'm sorry it just that that makes so much sense to me um if you if you if you thoughtfully progressively increase the top end um thinking about this concept of speed reserves then you can you can operate at a higher level more regularly without without overheating the engine um so to speak so that's um I like that a lot. I think about this all the time. I think you know, the, the body presents such an incredible metaphor for the mind. And I think, you know, if we were to listen to that, um, I think we'd be in really good shape. And, and let me also say this quick aside for the, for the people who've listened to podcasts before. We do a lot of work in the mental health area. We have an initiative called Team Embrace, which is all centered around embracing the conversation of mental health in athletics and that team setting. We should we should be open to these sorts of conversations and we should uh, hold each other accountable and support each other just in the way that we would for anything else. But so I definitely don't want to sound flippant about any of this. Um, but it also occurs to me that um, 
Hmm. I'm, I'm trying to pick my words carefully here, but, um, but it, it's certainly a conversation that has to be had, right? You can't, you can't not talk about this. Like I think, um, I was posting information on these injuries and people are like, Oh, why are you posting injuries? Like, we don't need to see that. That's bad. And it's like, uh, uh like videos of it. Right? And, right. and my response was like, do you, you know, like sweeping anything under the carpet, you're not going to learn from it, but mm-hmm. we can, we can look at these videos and go like, what was the mechanism of injury that maybe mm-hmm. we can improve on? So, you know, you can't, you know, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. And maybe that's, you, you just filled in the gaps and that was maybe where my pause was, is like, if I don't have any direct prescriptions, but I do know that we need to be talking about this and we need to be talking about it openly. We, we, it's not just, when we talk about embracing the conversation of mental health, it's not just about making this no longer a taboo subject. Like, you know, we often go with this idea that like, you know, the only, um, the only injuries that, that don't heal are the ones that we sort of completely deny. We don't treat them. We don't, you know, you, you, sprint on a a broken ankle obviously it's not going to get better Uh, but there's also a certain amount of even within that there's a certain amount of challenge and uh, and i'll use myself as an example here i i messed up my knee a little bit this summer um not doing anything cool so uh there's no story to be told i just ran into something um but it's amazing to see it's amazing to see the atrophy in in my leg you know, I, I took a little piece off the back of my kneecap. I messed up my PCL and I was just not stressing this leg. And in the absence of stress, it has gotten weaker and worse. So it seems, and again, this is, I'm, I'm trying to be, create a thoughtful metaphor for mental health. It doesn't sound insensitive in any way, but um, to find a balance of, of, of enough recovery and enough um, calm, I suppose, to to recover from whatever mental strain there is, that's essential. But to ignore mental strain or turn one's back to mental strain or keep it out of your life entirely, you create this sort of psychological atrophy. I, I, I think that that is not going to, although it seems like the right idea, it just doesn't pan out for you down the line. Yeah, there's certainly, um, there's a balance that has to be achieved, right? And it's between like, what is the right amount of stress for any given scenario or movement or sport? And I think that that makes it interesting. Um, and, and and you know what? People are going to get hurt. So um, you can't really judge these as failures. It's just, like you said, stuff happens and we have to learn how to move forward from it. And I think in most cases, you know, these injuries are recoverable from, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. so, you know, when back in the day, I think they were saying um, Gail Sayers passed recently right. and... Um, and they were saying that, uh, you know, with modern medicine now, they probably, I think he had an ACL that he never recovered from. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, right. yeah. So, um, you know, hit what, you know, if we had his ACL repaired, like I think Adrian Peterson was commenting on it, that or somebody like that who, who recovered and, and did quite well after. So, you know, um, this, this stuff is, isn't as bad as it used to be, but certainly uh, you want to prevent this as much as possible. And, and, you know, we should be talking about all these guys who are, I think there was one fellow from, um, I think it was the Colts. I can't remember, but there was a guy who, um, Campbell, Paris Campbell, he got hit in the knee and everybody's like, well, that was an ACL. And I think it was just his PCL that was, uh, stretched or, or slightly damaged, but you know, that's amazing. The guy took a shoulder to the knee and didn't. Mm you know, Tara's ACL. So like yeah. maybe we should be applauding those scenarios where people aren't getting hurt. Um, so it, it's all very interesting. And, you know, 
I'm looking forward to Sunday again, not, not cause I want to see injuries, but I want to see, you know, which teams are going to be more resilient in and have less of these problems. And then, well, what are they doing? Or is it just good luck or, you know, yeah. so. Do you think there'll be enough in season training, enough thoughtful in season training that this will, the, the amount of injury will sort of cascade down. You know what I mean? As though like these first four or five weeks are serving almost like the preseason. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know if it's the training or if it's just like, again, it's a natural selection thing. Like, um, you know, the people that are more, you know, hardy are going to survive this. Right. You know, I don't want to, you know, bring up coronavirus too much, but you saw this with a lot of the coronavirus stuff where the first time it came out in each country, you had a lot of deaths and now, not so many, still a lot of infections, but not so many. So maybe there is this, this curve where, you know, if you can resist the first wave or whatever it is, then as we go through the season, we'll see less of them. I'm hoping that's what's happening now uh, with the NFL, you know, week three, who knows, but maybe by week seven or eight, or maybe we'll see things slow down just like with that ACL statistic. But um, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously something that the teams are aware of, and they're probably going to try to do whatever they can. And, and maybe it's, you know, maybe they have to sit people out, you know, just like the NBA does with load management. And, you know, if somebody gets an injury, a minor injury, do you, when do you bring them back? Mm-hmm. Like, I think they're, they're looking at that with George Kittle, who had a mm-hmm. knee injury. Is he going to play um, in New York? Uh, on that turf, you know, they're thinking, well, let's give them another week. And, yeah. and maybe there's, there's that mentality around football now where it's like, well, it, we're going to get better value out of keeping him out one or two more games than rushing him back. And so I don't know, it's, it's, it's definitely very interesting to see how different teams respond at this time. Yeah, it will be. I, I wonder, um, I'm interested to see how that will move uh, with, with those guys in mind who happen to be on the wrong end of that hardiness equation, no offense to him. What are, what are the odds um, would you say these days with, with modern technology and rehab procedures that we see another Adrian Peterson like return? Is that, is it more common these days to essentially be back, whether it's nine months or year, whatever, to get back to full speed? Like, are we going to see Saquon Barkley again at the peak of the NFL? What do you think the likelihood is there? Oh, that's uh, this is a lot of factors, right? So, yeah. um, you know, first and foremost, what is your physical condition going into that injury, right? So was, you know, were you in great shape? And that that really determines a lot of how you recover. I think somebody who told me about Adrian Peterson said, even after the injury, um, they did not see much in the way of atrophy in his quad on that injured side. Like it, it was one of the best sort of, you know, looking quads they saw. So wow. I guess he had a lot of, you know, good, one good DNA and good preparation before he took that, that, that shot to the knee. Um, so I think that that's, that has a lot of bearing. Like I have this weird anecdotal thought around non-contact versus contact. Like when somebody has a contact ACL, um, I've had better results rehabbing them as opposed to, um, somebody who just stepped in, had their ACL tear. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe there's some pre-existing neurological piece to that, that, you know, the person who tore their ACL with somebody else's help, you know, 
didn't have any sort of pre-existing software issues with their, their system, but maybe the person who stepped and just tore their ACL, maybe they have a muscular control issue or a joint control issue or something that's, that, that makes them more susceptible. So, you know, maybe that, that pre-existing issue could, could determine their outcome. And then of course, how good is their rehab? What's their mental state? Um, you know, how, you know, is somebody with the team working with them constantly through rehab or are they kind of left to their own devices? So it varies so much. It's so hard to say. Um, yeah. You'd like to think that the guys who were the hard workers going in are going to be at a much better probability of coming out of that, you know? So it's tough. It's really tough because you don't want to see somebody's career end on that type of situation. I uh, agree. And um, where would you put, <clears throat> because week, what, am I right to think that week one was more Achilles heavy? Week two just happened to be more ACL heavy? Yeah. I mean, that's how it played out. I don't it's know. Just if there's, right. a, there's no, yeah. right. there's no reason, rhyme reason for that. But in comparing those two injuries, which one is, which one would you say is harder to come back from? Um, at least from the statistics, I, I, I gather that the, the Achilles is, um, and more so with obviously the skill positions where speed right. is a, an issue, right? So um, I, I, I think that's a more difficult one just because of the stretch reflex and, and you kind of lose it in that side. Um, you don't have as much uh, extensibility and, and just sort of reflex action. And there's a lot of atrophy in the calf that comes after that. So I would say that's probably a more difficult one. Um, you know, but it's so hard to say it's, uh, it, again, it depends on the athlete. I know, um, there's a lot of athletes who have come back from that Achilles issue, but you know, I I would say they're going to lose a step, you know, Mm, it's, 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 it's tough if they can compensate in some other way. Um, whereas if you're, uh, if you're an offensive lineman and you're putting your heel into the ground more and you don't need that stretch reflex, it's more of like stability and and strength and all that, you're probably going to have a better chance of coming out of that. But again, most of the Achilles have been at skill positions. Well, this is kind of an interesting situation because based on everything that you've said for those athletes who are coming back to football, say some of the um, college conferences that are, uh, have decided to bring it back with an abbreviated season or to some of the high school uh, state governing bodies who are considering bringing football back, what would your advice to these groups be? Um, uh, you know, like I, I just saw the PAC 12, we're looking at a November seven start. So that gives them, you know, six weeks. Um, and I think my understanding was that they can't do, they were doing small group skill work and all that. So, uh, it's going to be doing that, that sort of game simulation type practice and having a progression around that over that six weeks, which is going to be tough because it, you and I both know that as soon as somebody gives the go ahead, like you can practice, like they may jump it up really quickly and just try to do full practice right away. Yeah. But you have to kind of, um, you know, take into consideration that there has to be some progression of all that. And it's not, you know, three days of easy practices and then you jump back on it. It's going to be like a 10 day progression in um, almost linear uh, in, in many respects. So that would be my recommendation. I don't know if anybody has experience with that or how to do that from a practice point of view, from a strength and conditioning point of view, it's all numbers and arithmetic. It's math, right? right? You just know that, okay, we'll do more reps and more intensity as we go along or whatever it is. Um, But how do you quantify practice? And I think that's going to be the tough part for, for coaches is um, what does that look like in terms of number of reps by position, by um, series, by, you know, 
practice period because they're all different. And um, I think if you have, if you know, again, I, I always try to encourage the strength staff to have this good relationship with the coaching staff so mm-hmm. that they can put their heads together. Because I assume if you're a strength and conditioning coach, you've gone through, you know, periodization concepts and you understand the progression piece. Whereas if you're a football coach, who knows what your education was because, you right. know, you just, anybody, <laughs> I hate to say it, but anybody can become a football coach. I don't know what kind of certification there is, but um, you're usually a former player and you're like, okay, you start it you know, working with positions and you work with, uh, you know, defense or offense. And then, you know, then you're a head coach. My estimation would be, what is that? What does that practice piece look like? And then, you know, what kind of scrimmages are you going to have leading up to your first game? Because mm. even in some of the college games that I've watched, it's been a little sloppy the first couple of games because I think they've missed that. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, that, that would be my recommendation, even at the high school level. I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, I guess a quick aside, are you a fan of like GPS based, like catapult type systems to, to track loads in practice or, or training volumes? Is that something that you can work? I, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to it, but certainly, um, you know, the one thing that, 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 that I do have issues with is not everybody has access to that because it's not cheap, right? So uh, obviously if you're a division one program or a, um, an, a pro team, you can use that and, and, and have the staff to implement it and review it and all that. Whereas if you're a high school coach, um, you have to find other ways to quantify things. And it could be, you know, one of the basic things would be like quantifying things by time. Mm-hmm. So how much time do we, you know, attach to each, you know, special teams versus seven on seven versus, mm-hmm. you know, all those sort of things. And you have to, and then you have to grade them by intensity or whatever. So somebody could do that. Somebody, like I, I said, I was telling somebody, if you just had somebody with a stopwatch and timing the amount of work um, yeah. and maybe having like, a one to five scale on intensity so that, you know, some, a walkthrough is a one versus a full go is a five. And then you could come up with a spreadsheet that told you, you know, how much of each of those things you had. It's not, not a bad way of doing things because no. when it comes down to using catapult, you know, it's not a hundred percent accurate either. Like the velocities right. are, are estimations really to some degree because you just can't capture that so accurately. So you're just getting orders of magnitude that you're measuring. And I think that's, that's how I would do it, you know, and, and just rate your practice, right? That's a really good way to, to look at it. And, and, and it's actually something I'm, I'm excited to hear you say that because it's, it's the sort of thing that we often will advise teams to do. Meaning if there's a kickoff section, if you've got your kickoff section, how, first of all, how many lines deep is it? Is it two, three lines? Um, are we running 10 minutes of kickoff? Uh, you know, and these are 40, 50 yard all out sprints. And, and, you know, you're, if you're only two or three lines deep, everyone, you know, who's involved in this section, they're getting, uh, you know, their total volume at this higher intensity is much higher. Now, does, does that change everything or limit uh, the player in one way or another? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it's not on me to suggest, but, but with your logic here, it's, it, it's just, a, it's a way to sort of thoughtfully assess. It's, 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 it's almost like a self-check. It's, it's like a, a self-awareness for, for coaches, which might be really valuable. Um, I would go as far as to say that like, well, I, I, I'm trying to think of how declarative I want to be here. I, 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 um, I think for the teams who initially had their seasons postponed to spring or to, you know, in, in Illinois, it's February is when football is supposed to kick off. 
if, if everything's been designed around February, the idea that we'd hit the gas on this, I'm talking about the high school level, the idea that we'd hit the gas on this and try to get uh, you know, a season kicked off in two or three weeks, it, it, it just, it scares me a little bit because like you said, not, not, you know, catapult, what a, you know, not everyone has access to that. Well, similarly, not everyone has access to, to thoughtful periodized strength and conditioning programs. So day one of training for a lot of these kids might be day one of practice. Um, is there any validity to, to my fears or should I calm down? Yeah, I think, yeah, the fears are, are totally valid because you have all these, all these factors that are kind of culminating into this one, you know, period in February and okay. Uh, you know, I haven't been, uh, well, I, I've been through Chicago in February through the airport, but it's not a great time to start a football <laughs> camp, right? With right. the weather and all. So you, you have like an August time when everybody's running around and doing everything and everybody's, you know, very supple and it's warm. And then you try to, to, to recreate that in February. How's that going to look from an injury point of view? Probably not very good unless you have an indoor facility. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I really don't know if this has been thought out uh, to the degree, degree it needs to be. And, and then, you know, throw on top of that, you have these extended periods where you haven't probably been training as much as you used to and heading into August camp. And so now it's protracted out for another four or five, six months of maybe some, you know, detraining and atrophy and, you know, just lack of skill work. So, you know, do people remember how to tackle? I don't know. Um, so there, there has to be Again, there has to be a plan around what does that progression look like and where do we need to be in week one, week two, week three, week four of this progression and what pieces do we have to start, you know, implementing, you know, in what sequence. Uh, it's a place where nobody has ever been. So people right. have to really deconstruct and reverse engineer everything and go, what needs to be done at this time? I like it. And um, I just, I've really liked our conversation too. So, and, and the reason is... <clears throat> So much of what we're about and in, in, in the sort of thinking that we try to espouse is like, it, it's not, um, I, I just feel like you, you, I'm, I'm glad to be validated by someone who's as accomplished as you are in this sort of thinking, meaning not to be fast to say this is right, this is wrong, but uh, couldn't we, and, and I've heard you say it time and time again, couldn't we just be a little more thoughtful about this entire process can't we look closely you know listen to the feedback that we're getting whether it's whether it's injury rate or, or actually talking to young people about what they're experiencing through this time plan thoughtfully listen to feedback adjust accordingly like there's really no jumping a process like that there's no one way to be right there's no one way to be wrong um so i'm just I, i'm i'm grateful for your approach if nothing else yeah, I mean, and all of this is very metaphorical across the board. So it's um, it's not about going back to the old ways of doing things. Like I wish it was just like it used to be. You know, if you if you're thinking that way, you're going to be at a you know at a loss. You're going to be behind, right? But if you're starting to think about, okay, well, how do we have to adapt to 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 you know move forward properly? That's the state of mind or the mindset you want to be in. Because as soon as you go back to like, let's just run football practice like we used to, or camp like we used to, you're going to be in trouble, right? right? Just like if I go back to running my restaurant the way we used to, or whatever, whatever, whatever business or what, how we run school. Like I think school should now, everybody involved in education has to have a robust, stable uh, online component to it. I don't care what 
you say about how it's going to go back, you better have an online component that's stable and easy to use and easy to implement that runs parallel to what you're doing in person. Um, that's just the way it's got to be. And uh, right. you know, even for myself, like I, I teach a lot of in-person courses. I was supposed to be in uh, Chicago in June and, and, and um, there's a friend of mine who runs a facility, Tommy Christian. Uh, it's called uh, TC Boost. I know Tommy very well. Yeah, so uh, we were supposed to present at his facility and and like, okay, let's do in-person. Oh, can't do in-person now. So I've had to pivot and create, you know, engaging online courses, which I'm in the process of doing. Uh, and even when I go back to in-person, I'll still have that and I'll still, it'll still be, and it may supplement, um, you know, the in-person stuff I do. So if you sign up for my in-person course, you come to it, but then you'll still have access to all the online resources too. It just makes sense, right? So. Yeah, it, it does. And, and um, as difficult as this has been for so many, and it's been difficult for almost everyone, I think, I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head. I think a, a humility and a willingness to adapt is, is one of the key tools in the toolbox right now. So, um, and, and that's true for whatever we see next too, you know, um, you know, who knows what the world will look like after this, but um, we know that it won't be the same as it was five years ago or 10 years ago. So, um, the willingness to adapt seems essential. Absolutely. So I appreciate that. So uh, I also appreciate you, the, your approach, the work you're doing. And I didn't know that you knew Tommy. Tommy's a wonderful guy. He's, uh, he's pretty much right down the, the road from us. And, awesome. And, uh, yeah, he, he's great. I'll, can I tell him you say hello? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Tell him he's got to get a one wheel. Uh, Cause I, we were talking about this last year and uh, I think he has a electric skateboard. I'm like, listen, you got... <laughs> You know, we got to get a one wheel. So I got one and then he still hasn't got one because his wife won't let him. So um, he's got to get a one wheel electric skateboard. So I love it. All right. I, I am as soon as we get off. I'm gonna send, <laughs> I love that idea. I love it. Um, I will thank you sincerely for all that you do. I know you've helped uh, countless people over your career and you're still, um, you know, and, and, and that will continue. You're a young man still. And, and uh, I think a lot of people will benefit. I'm older. Work. I'm older than Tommy. I'm older than Tommy. If you can well, believe it. Tommy's a young man too. Come on. <laughs> the, uh, the, I, I just, I, I'm encouraged by it. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm excited for our conversation today. I hope it's the first of many, because I think getting this thought process out to more and more coaches, um, is good for sport. It's good for people. Um, it's good for us all. Yeah. Yeah. We got to talk about it. So <laughs> we have to, do you need business cards? Do you need flyers, posters, custom thank you notes, or any sort of stationery to take your business to the next level? If so, then you've got to see the good people at Mighty Printing. They've got two locations. One of them's up north in Glencoe, Illinois. The other is right in the heart of Chicago on 180 West Washington Street. They do most of the printing for the Good Athlete Project, and we just could not do our business without them. They've also worked with teams like the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago Blackhawks. They've worked with Let Us Entertain You restaurant group they do holiday cards they do wedding cards they help you they help you not only celebrate special occasions but make them that much more special and like i said if you are a small business owner or a large business owner they will give you the sort of personalized service combined with incredibly high quality goods you just can't find that combo honestly anywhere else find them online at mightyprint.com that's m-i-t-e print p-r-i-n-t.com and on instagram same thing at mighty print m-i-t-e print and tell them the good athlete project sent you